Welcome to Haunted Talks, the official podcast of The Haunted Walk, offering thematic walking tours in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto, Ontario. My name is Jim Dean. I am the creative director of the company, and thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. March break is upon us, and a quick reminder that we do have tours every night during March break in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto. And if you need to get the kids out of the house or just enjoy some of the spring air, we'd love to see you out during March break. Information about all our tours can be found on our website, which is hauntedwalk.com. Knowing that the episode would be coming out at this time, I wanted to try to tie in some element of family, as March break is a time when families often travel together, have new and exciting experiences. But in typical Haunted Walk fashion, this line of thought led me to perhaps Canada's most infamous family, who were brutally murdered by their neighbors in 1880, the Black Donleys. Much of the Donleys' tale is interwoven with violence, mayhem, and can be a bit frightening. So I'll give a quick disclaimer up front that things are going to get a little dark and a little violent in this episode. That being said, this is one of the most fascinating stories of early Canada. I grew up in London, Ontario, which is roughly situated about halfway between Detroit, Michigan, and Toronto. And just north of London is a small town known as Lucan, and that is where the Donleys lived and died. Growing up, the Donley name almost had a boogeyman-like quality to it, the Black Donleys. This kind of evil that took place not far from where we lived. And my father had a book on his bookshelf by Orlo Miller, perhaps one of the definitive texts on the Donleys, called The Donleys Must Die. And that title, combined with its psychedelic 70s cover, instilled a little bit of fear in my young heart. When I was old enough to read the book, the tales inside of revenge, murder, sabotage, all combined to create a very rich imagery in my mind as to who this family was, what they were about, and what ultimately happened to them. Even in preparing for the show, Rereading this book of my father's that is 40 years old and that I read maybe 20 years ago, its crinkled yellow pages still carry very a heavy weight of history. As I began working on this episode, I knew I had to speak to one of our tour guides. My name is Leonard Belcher, and I've been a guide at the Haunted Walk since 2012, so I'm in my fifth year now. I knew Leonard was interested in the Donley family story, but perhaps not to the extent as when he showed up with an armful of books. On the subject. Well, my interest in the Donleys began um, as a result of my parents. For Christmas one year, they gave my sister and I the Donley books. There were two back in the 60s. They were very popular. And of course, we read them. And from then on, I was aware of the Donleys. But we never made the journey to Lucan. In fact, I never, in fact, visited at all till I moved to London in 1991. And I used to go up actually quite often and tried to find out all the different uh, sites. But what I found when I went to the town and you, you tried to speak to anyone, no one would talk about the Donleys. Uh, of course, it, was a, 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 it wasn't a secret, but it was certainly a black spot uh, in the township of Lucan, and they did not want to, to uh, discuss it whatsoever. Now, it's, it's made quite an about-face, uh, they've opened an interpretive center. Uh, I was there a couple of years ago. I'd hoped to go to the opening, but I missed it. Uh, but now they've embraced the whole Donnelly story because it is such a, a magnet for people. 
The fascination has never stopped, despite the fact it's 130 some, 100 and almost 140 years ago now. The Donnelly story has many twists and turns. Perhaps the best place to start, though, is on the night of the murders. February 4th, 1880. By the time things were all said and done, five members of the Donnelly family would have been brutally murdered. If we were to time travel back to the night of February 4th, 1880, just after midnight, what we would observe would be a quiet farmhouse in the Ontario countryside. The Donnelly family had settled down for the evening. The following morning, they were making the trip by sleigh to London to stand trial for arson. Sometime after midnight, 20 to 40 of the Donnelly's neighbors surrounded their farmhouse. Before the evening was over, five Donnelly's would be dead, and the homestead burned to the ground. I worked with the great-great-grandson of one of the vigilante members, and he was quite willing to speak, whereas many, many of the descendants, at least during my time in London, would not speak of it at all. And what, what does he say? Oh, he said that his great-great-grandfather was indeed part of the vigilante, and um, you know, he knew what he had done, and the families lived with it, just as all the other families have that have, uh, have grown up since then. This is something that is part of their family history, and perhaps it's just the connection to the whole Donnelly uh, story that you know people do like to be uh, um, close to celebrity, and that they were celebrities at the time. What caused the respected members of the community to rise up and commit these terrible murders? The answer to that question is not simple. And to start looking for answers, we need to go back to Ireland. James Donnelly was born on March 7th, 1816, in the parish of Boris O'Kane. On one hand, many of his associates knew him as an industrious worker, considerate, a real, a real gentleman. But to others, he was known as a heavy drinker, reckless, eager to talk politics, and perhaps more eager to throw a punch. Ireland was a very dangerous place to live in at the time. Famine and food shortages were very common, combined with an explosive political atmosphere. It wasn't long before that Oliver Cromwell's conquest of Ireland installed rich Protestant landowners, which did not sit well with the, the Irish Roman Catholics, who often felt their rights were abused were stepped upon. The Donleys found themselves in the middle of this, and they were known as Blackfeet, which were Roman Catholics from Ireland who worked or in some way supported the Protestants. For the Roman Catholic, they were too close to the Protestants, and for the Protestants, they were too close to the Roman Catholics, leaving them in this interesting space in the middle. It was while working as a coach driver at one of these large estates that James Donnelly Sr., met Joanna McGee, who worked as a servant in one of the big houses. Her father did not approve of the relationship and even asked the master of the house, the homeowner, her employer, to lock her on the second floor so that James Sr. and her could not speak. The messages still got through, and one night, in a very bold move, James, with the aid of a very large ladder, managed to climb up to the second floor, steal away Johanna, and get married in the middle of the night. In 1841, the couple has their first child, James Jr., and the following year, the three of them set sail 
for Upper Canada. It is still three years before the family will arrive in present-day Lucan, Ontario. But even before they get there, at this time, the community is almost equally divided between Irish immigrants who are Protestant Roman Catholics and then the Blackfeet who exist somewhere in the middle. Looking ahead, the Donleys will be blamed for much of the violence that will take place in the area over the next 40 years. But it is important to point out that even before the family arrived, fights were extremely common, violence, murder, assaults between these different factions. This was a rough and tumble place before the Donleys arrived. So while over the next 40 years, they will take much of the blame in the community for the unrest, it must be pointed out that this type of behavior was happening long before they arrived. Like most poor Irish immigrants coming to Canada, the journey was exceptionally hard. And I'll read here from Orlo Miller. There is no record of the ship on which they crossed the Atlantic. If it was like other ships of the immigrant run, it was a floating pigsty, cramped and disease-ridden, designed to transport large numbers of human cattle at the greatest possible profit to the owners. These sea-going charnel houses were periodically subject to outbreaks of ship's fever or typhus. The worst of these epidemics occurred in 1847, when it killed unknown thousands of poor Irish immigrants on the sea and after their landing. A memorial at Gross Isle in the St. Lawrence River, a former quarantine station to receive Irish immigrants. There is an epitaph there that reads, In this secluded spot lie the mortal remains of 5,424 persons who, fleeing from the pestilence and famine in Ireland in the year 1847, found in America but a grave. The Donleys survived the experience and set out for new hope and new prosperity in southwestern Ontario. When they arrived in present-day Lucan, they had very little money. So they adopted a practice that many of their contemporaries were doing at the time, as there were large tracts of land in the area owned by wealthy landowners. They simply squatted. They cut down the woods and built themselves a home on someone else's land. In this case, the land was owned by a man named John Grace. I wasn't sure what to expect as far as an experience for myself when I went to the farmhouse, to the site. And I remember it was a beautiful day. It was a summer day. And uh, I got there. And right away, I, I, I think the fact that it's a place that I had long wanted to visit, it was quite overwhelming for me. And, of course, there were the lawn chairs sitting uh, within the four corners of the original frame of the house. But this, the actual house was burnt in 1880. Uh, you just see the four corners of where it stood. So we sat there in the lawn chairs, and I, I can hardly describe the feeling. The entire time we're there, you're constantly looking around because you know you're being watched. And Mr. Salty even told us that that was a common experience most people have while they're on the property. And the entire time I was there, constantly looking at the trees, the bushes, and around and behind me, because you, you just knew someone was watching. For the next 10 years... James Donnelly Sr. and his family work the land. The family grows with the birth of six more boys, William, John, Patrick, Michael, Robert, and Thomas. In 1855, John Grace sells half the land the Donnellys had been working to a man named 
Michael Marr for 200 pounds. And if there's a moment in time, we can trace back everything that will happen to to the Donleys and to the community around that area. It might be this one simple business transaction. After purchasing the property, Michael Marr rents it to a man by the name of Patrick Farrell for him to work the land. The matter eventually ends up before the court, and surprisingly, the Donleys are allowed to keep and live on half the land, which they end up buying from John Grace for a mere 50 pounds, much less than what Michael Marr paid for his half of the land. The bad feelings, though, from the exchange continue on for several more years. The feud between James Donnelly Sr. and Patrick Farrell reached ahead on June 27, 1857, when both men were in attendance at a barn raising. As was the custom, with all the hard work came a lot of celebration and alcohol. And according to eyewitnesses, Patrick Farrell got quite drunk. Knowing of the tension between the two men, everyone did their best to try to keep them apart, keep the conversation fairly neutral. However, Patrick Farrell began making too many comments for James Donnelly's liking. And at one point, after a final insult was thrown his way, James Donnelly Sr. took after Patrick Farrell. Accounts differ, but Patrick Farrell was holding an axe at the time. And some say that axe was thrown in James Sr.'s direction. The two men locked up in battle and began scuffling. As both were quite drunk, The onlookers were not too concerned about any serious damage being done. However, after Patrick Farrell landed a particularly hard shot that sent James Donnelly to the ground, it was there that his hand found an iron handspike used for the frame of the barn. He threw the spike, striking him precisely in the temple. Two days later, Patrick Farrell died. If James Donnelly Sr. had taken the advice of his friends, he would have turned himself in immediately. Instead, he chose another route, and for the next two years, went into hiding. Where did he go? It is true that he did spend some time with other neighbors and friends in hiding, but it seems the majority of his time was actually spent in hiding on the Donley homestead. we got to remember that at the time, the area surrounding the farm would have been a very rugged wilderness, with lots of opportunities to hide. What is funny, though, is during this time, a rather square-shouldered neighborly woman would often be seen helping Joanna with the chores around the farm. Apparently, James would often sleep in the barn or sleep in the woods, and then during the day, come help Joanna and the rest of the boys with the duties that needed to be required. It seemed that every time the authorities came to visit, though, word would get there soon enough that James Sr. could get into hiding before they arrived. After approximately two years of hiding in the bush, James Donnelly Sr. turns himself in and is sentenced to seven years in the Kingston Penitentiary. At this time, there was no reduction of sentences for good behavior. So Joanna had to try to hold on to the family land and keep the family together. She took out multiple mortgages to try to keep the family afloat and even sold a small bit of their land for a local school to be put up. Her other tactic in trying to keep the family strong was her constant message to her boys that if someone challenges you, you always have to be prepared to fight. 
do not take anything from anyone. And while that strategy may have been very crucial in the seven years that James Sr. was away, its long-term damage on the boys of that family may be a key reason for the massacre that occurred in 1880. In 1865, James Sr. returns home from the Kingston Pen. After his return over the next several years, several members of the Donnelly family get accused and charged of crimes. Anything from larceny to robbing a post office. The vast majority of these charges are acquitted. This may be the real start of the Donleys becoming scapegoats for anything that goes wrong in the area. In 1871, several of the Donley boys began to work for a stagecoach line owned by McGee and Keefe. A couple years later, William, the second-born son, who coincidentally also was born with what was known as a clubbed foot, a physical deformity that you have to imagine played a role in how the Donleys were perceived. He apparently was quite an intelligent man, and he actually ends up opening his own stagecoach. Shortly after, a man named Patrick Flanagan opens his own rival stagecoach line. This immediately sets the two sides at odds. One of Flanagan's coaches is destroyed, and a stagecoach driver killed when a wheel falls off one of their carriages. Immediately, the Donleys are accused of sabotage. In retaliation, one of Flanagan's drivers cuts off the Donley coach, sending passengers spilling off. Donleys end up charging him and winning the damages, only to have the passengers of the coach then sue the Donleys as well. As the rivalry intensified, several of Flanagan's stables are burned. Later in the year, Flanagan is beaten severely by unknown attackers, and more of his stages are burned. The Donleys, once again, are the primary suspects. In 1876, a private investigator and several constables go to Thomas Ryder's wedding, an event several of the Donley boys are attending, with the hopes of arresting them. A riot ensues. Shots are fired. The Donleys manage to escape, with the townspeople giving chase. Many of them looking for justice for a variety of alleged crimes that have taken place over the past five years. Michael Donnelly is captured, but manages to escape. Eventually, the Donnellys do get their day in court, with most of the charges against them being dropped. The following year, 1877, the violence in Lucan increases. The Donnelly stables and carriages are burned, as is Michael Donnelly's home. Most members of the community are still blaming the Donnelly family for anything bad that happens. In 1879, a new Catholic priest, Father John Conley, arrives and is immediately informed about the Donnelly problem. He forms a peace society and asks the community to pledge their support to agree to allow their homes to be searched for any stolen property. The Donnelly family refuses to sign the pledge. It is also around this time that a man named James Carroll brings forth a charge of assault against several of the Donnelly boys. This name is going to become important in just a few moments. From Father Donnelly's Peace Society, a new group is formed, a spin-off, if you will, known as the Vigilance Society. In 1879, a cow disappears from the Thompson farm, and immediately they are convinced that the Donleys have stolen it. A large group of them go and search the Donley farm 
without permission. They find nothing, and the cow is later found back on the Thompson farm. The Donnelly family accuses the group of trespassing. Shortly after this cow disappearance, James Carroll, the man who accuses the Donnellys of assaulting him, becomes a constable. He promises to rid the township of the scourge of the Donnellys. He tries to arrest Thomas Donnelly on old charges, but he escapes. John Donnelly is charged with perjury, but is also later acquitted. Throughout the whole Donnelly story, there are very few charges against the Donnellys that ever seem to stick. And that brings us to the fateful year of 1880. On January 15th, Patrick Ryder, a neighbor of the Donnellys, his barn burns down. That night, Thomas, William, and John, the remaining Donnelly boys living on the homestead, are at a wedding nearby. The Vigilance Society blames James Sr., now 64, and Joanna, 57, of arson. A trial is scheduled to take place in London, Ontario, on February 4th. In the late hours of February 3rd, as the Donnelly family was settling down to sleep, a secret meeting was taking place of the Peace or Vigilance Society only half a mile away. The group had been spying on the Donnellys throughout the day, as later that night they planned to pay the family a visit and wanted all the family members, including the particularly evil William with his clubbed foot, to be there. What their intents were when they arrived is something that is up for debate. Did they just wish to give the family a good beating? Turned out, went too far? What we do know is that there were at least 20 to 40 men present at this secret meeting, many of them wearing disguises, including one farmer who was dressed in his wife's clothing, others using stove soot to blacken their faces. Heavy items of clothing were used also to conceal identity, and some were not disguised at all. Many of these men were armed, including with small firearms, pitchforks, shovels, and homemade clubs. As the group made the half-mile walk to the Donnelly homestead, they were unaware that William had left earlier in the evening to go to his brother John's house. The next morning, he was going to bring the sleigh to take the family to the trial for burning down the barn. What happens next will be extremely gruesome. The only eyewitness we will have of the next hour or so is a young boy named Johnny O'Connor. As the Donnellys were heading out of town for the trial, Johnny O'Connor was going to look after the animals on the farm. He was going to take care of the place while they were gone. We are lucky he was there, as he was the only eyewitness to survive the attack. And it also comments a little bit on at least there was one family who lived very close to the Donnellys that thought enough of them to allow their child to stay over with them and take care of their property. A gentle snow began to fall on a moonless night as the men encircled the house. The first inside was Constable James Carroll, who had visited the home many times conducting random investigations and searches. Tiptoeing in, without trying to make a sound, he recognized the figure of Thomas sleeping in one of the front rooms. As quietly as he could, he handcuffed Thomas to the bed. As the handcuffs clicked close, Tom Donnelly awoke and was not pleased at all about his situation. James Carroll loudly proclaimed, You are under arrest. This awoke everyone in the house. James Sr., the father, came out. Mother Joanna and 
Bridget, a niece of the Donleys who had been staying with them, immediately set out to start a fire. Johnny O'Connor remained hidden in the bedroom. Tom Donnelly loudly declared, All right, read the warrant. To which James Carroll replied, There will be plenty of time for that. In describing what happened next, I'm going to read from Ray Fazakis's book, The Donnelly Album. He is certainly one of the experts in the field, and I think he paints the picture exceptionally well. The next instant, Carol let out a whoop. The door to the kitchen burst open, and the crowd of men rushed in. They started whooping and hollering. With their clubs, they began at once to beat the old man, and the old woman and Tom Donnelly were stricken with terror. The girl, Bridget, flew out of the kitchen and into the front room, heading for the narrow stairway to the loft. Johnny O'Connor jumped out of the bed and ran after her, but was brought up short when Bridget slammed the door shut right behind her. Without even trying to open the door, he quickly whirled around and ran back into the old man's bedroom. As he passed the doorway to the kitchen, he caught a fleeting glimpse of a wild and bloody melee in which three Donleys were being battered. Old Jim Donnelly fell in a few moments, his skull broken in by the repeated blows at the hands of old nemesis. Mrs. Donnelly was a large and strong woman, and her long, sturdy arms fended off the initial blows. As for Tom, as soon as the men rushed in, he began to whoop and thrash about wildly, flailing away with his feet as well as his manacled hands. He ducked and kicked and swung and burst through his attackers. He ran through the center doorway of the house into the front room and threw it to the front door. With barely a pause, he put his shoulder to the door and it almost came off its hinges as it burst open. He ran out, the whole time whooping at the top of his voice. Awaiting outside the front door was, among others, Tom Ryder with a pitchfork at the ready. Tom Donnelly did not get more than 10 feet from the door when he was struck down. He raised himself upon his knees, but the pitchfork was thrust into him again and again. The blood spurted out in great gobs from the multiple wounds left by the steel tines, and in a moment a great spreading patch of red stained the freshly fallen snow under him. Inside, Johanna Donnelly shrieked at the top of her voice above the howls of her attackers. She fought courageously, but she was beaten to her knees. A minute to pray, she gasped. Carol replied, You have prayed too long already. He struck at her. On her knees, she crawled, trying to follow her son through the doorway, but only made it to the inside of the front room and fell there. Outside, several men picked up Tom Donnelly and carried him back, face down, feet first, into the house. Johnny O'Connor heard the handcuffs rattle in the front room as they struck the floor and peeking out from under the bed, he saw Tom Donnelly's stocking feet. The men stood around the prostrate form, almost as if in disbelief at what they had finally done. Someone cried out, Hit this fellow on his head with that shovel and break his head open. One of the men stepped up and struck the fallen man with three or four heavy blows to his head. Where's the girl? someone asked. Look upstairs, another replied. Several of the men trampled upstairs. There was a short scuffle, a muffled scream of terror by the girl, and the men returned in a few moments, one of them carrying her limp body across his shoulders. It's all right, he said. Bridget Donnelly was carried into the kitchen and dumped over the body of James Donnelly Sr. During the wild melee, no one had paid any attention to Jim Donnelly's little dog, which had begun to yelp in terror when the men burst into the house. 
Now, one of the men went over to the dog, which was still barking, and cracked its head with one swipe of his club. Another man ran over with his axe and chopped the dog's head off, kicking it under the stove. Old Jim Donnelly, lying a few feet away, groaned. The men then dumped the coal oil from the lamps, splashed it around the room and on the beds, and then set fire to it. Johnny O'Connor, still in hiding, waited a few moments in terror. The flames above him leapt higher, and he realized he would have to get out or be burned to death. He pushed on a door to try to get out, but try all he could, he couldn't get it open. He shoved again with all his might, managing to get it just a crack enough for him to slip through. It was then that he realized that it was Mrs. Donnelly's body blocking the door. He managed to escape and get to a nearby neighbor's house. A lynching had just been carried out in southwestern Ontario, but the violence was not done there. As the group was determined to see the end of William Donnelly, the clubbed foot cripple, they headed towards his home not far away. And once again, they encircled a Donnelly home. A few of the men went to the stable, which contained Will's prize breeding horse, Jack's Alive. They beat the horse mercilessly in order to try to rouse someone from the house, but to no avail. Eventually, one of them took to yelling, Fire! Fire! outside the front door. Will Donnelly heard this scream, as did his brother John, who was closer to the front door. So John was the one who went and opened the door. Again, reading from Ray Fazakis's The Donnelly Album. As he opened the door, a blaze of lead from each gun blazed into his chest and groin. The shot from a shotgun blew over 30 holes in John's chest, piercing his lungs and breaking his collarbone, as well as several ribs, both front and back. Mortally wounded, John Donnelly fell back into the kitchen. Seven more shots were fired in quick succession into the front of the house. The group had mistaken John for William, and thinking they had gotten their prize, they decided enough blood had been shed for one night, and they left. John died on the floor moments later. Yeah, the graveyard is right off the highway, right at the Roman line. When you turn onto the Roman line off the highway between Lucan and London, yeah, well, in this graveyard, this, the, the Donnellys are buried there, as well as many of uh, the vigilante members and descendants as well. You can see all of the names. It's quite fascinating to go through the graveyard itself. Uh, but the interesting story about the graveyard and the tombstone in particular, the original tombstone is now gone. In fact, the first one that was uh, um, installed had the words murdered for each of the victims. The original stone, the townsfolk said no, they could not say murdered. It was there for quite a lengthy time. It was removed and they replaced it with another stone in which the murdered was struck from the record. However, what's so fascinating Every time I have ever gone, you can see people have chipped some of the engraving off the stone. They've obviously taken souvenirs from the tombstone of the Donnelly family. But what's even more fascinating, on top of the stone, often there's money that's left to restore the stone. Because I asked one time about what the money was about. And it's collected by whoever cares for the cemetery. And the funds go to help... Uh, maintain the graveyard, obviously, but also to try and restore the tombstone because it, it does need repair from time to time. In the fallout of the massacre, several of the participants were charged, including James Carroll. For the trials, the Crown had seeked to move the venue somewhere further than London, Ontario, as the Donnelly name had a significant reputation there as well. 
and there could be no assurances of an unbiased trial. After several months, the trial began. With the defendants choosing to have individual trials, the Crown chose to proceed first against James Carroll, charged with the murder of Johanna Donnelly. The climax of the trial was once again the testimony by young Johnny O'Connor, who gave a straightforward version, including observing several of the people he recognized who were charged, including James Carroll. Carroll's defense was alibi. Two of his neighbors, William and Mary Thompson, swearing that the Carroll brothers had spent the entire evening with them. When the jury retired, a guilty verdict was expected. However, when the jury straggled back into the courtroom, the foreman wearily announced they were unable to agree and that there was no prospect for agreement. They had stood seven for acquittal, four for conviction, and one undecided. The judge discharged the jury and remanded the prisoners in custody for their trial at the next court. The result of the second trial for James Carroll was more surprising than the first, as the jury returned with a not guilty verdict. As it was believed that if James Carroll could not be charged of a crime for which the Crown had its strongest case, there was no point holding the remainder of the prisoners, and they were released. At the time, the Toronto Globe editorialized Stronger evidence, both direct and circumstantial, has rarely been brought against any man who, in the face of it, escaped the gallows. The Detroit Free Press wrote, The two ends of Canada differ somewhat. At New Westminster, British Columbia, four men were hung last week for the murder of one man. While at the border of Old Westminster in Ontario, one man was acquitted who was shown to have murdered four persons. Another fascinating um, element of this whole entire story is looking at the vigilante members themselves. Many of those individuals who participated that night in the massacre, they themselves died under very mysterious circumstances. And the death started shortly thereafter and continued for years and years. And I know it has been documented in one of the books that I have. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. But it definitely does discuss uh, some of the gruesome deaths that many of them faced in the end themselves. And is the implication there that it was kind of a curse or more that this was a case, uh, that these are cases of revenge? I've heard both. I've heard the curse of the Black Donnellys as well as Revenge of the Donnellys. In fact, there's a book entitled Revenge of the Donnellys. So there may well, may well in fact be something to that. Given the violence that has taken place on the property, it's not surprising that we would hear of some ghost stories. Today, the Donnelly homestead is owned by a man named Robert Saltz. He actually offers tours of the place as well. He's written a book called You Are Never Alone. And in there, he cites a couple of his family's strange encounters. Our son Charles turned five in the fall of 1988. And about that time, he was playing upstairs on the bed one Saturday morning. He quickly came down to the kitchen in rather an agitated state, seemingly frightened, but not to the point of tears. He told his mother and I that he was on the bed when there appeared in the room a man and woman dressed in plain black clothing. During all times of year, I am often awakened in the middle of the night to the faint sound of footsteps coming down the stairs from the bedroom above. At first I thought it was our son getting up for a drink, but when I checked on him, he was sound asleep. I don't get up to check the stairs for someone anymore, but listen intently for each footfall, and then after... I roll over 
and go back to sleep. During the month of August 1995, along with the footsteps emanating from the stairwell, I heard my name called three times. The voice was a soft but firm masculine tone. The time noted was 1.29 a.m. on the clock. I did not respond nor get up to investigate, as I knew there would be no one there. On another occasion, my wife was taking grocery bags out of the car next to the drive shed, and as she walked by, she distinctly heard the sound of a hacksaw. At first, she thought I was home and working in the shop. However, she realized the doors were locked and that I was not home. Later, when she told me about what she had experienced, I asked her why she didn't get the key and take a look. Her response was, Are you nuts? What would I find? She probably would have seen nothing. People talk about being in the graveyard at night, which, by the way, you're not allowed to do anymore because there are large signs. No one is allowed in the graveyard after dusk at all. You will be charged and fined, and the police will come and take you away, I guess. Uh, But when people used to go there at night, there is a story of a talking crow who claims to be the spirit of a Donnelly family member. And... I did not experience that, I've not been there at night, but on my last visit to Lucan, when I arrived, uh, it was all quiet until I set foot in the cemetery. The moment we did this, the trees came alive with the sound of birds, angry birds, I must add. These birds were not happy that we were here in the graveyard. Nevertheless, we spent the time that we wanted, and the birds never stopped. they're chirping, and it wasn't a friendly chirp. Uh, they were very, very talkative the entire time we were visiting until we stepped off the property. It was as though the birds were telling us to get out or stay away, or they definitely knew, I think, of my interest in the Donnellys, and they were either warning the spirits about me or warning me to stay away. In the end, it is very difficult to know what to make of the Donnellys. Were they a troubled family, always involved in fights and chaos? Or did they become scapegoats in a community where their religious and political affiliations put them in a bad spot? Whatever the case, there is little doubt that February 4th, 1880, was one of the most bloody and gruesome nights in Canadian history. Thank you very much for joining us for today's episode. Also, a special thank you to Leonard Belcher for joining us uh, on the show and providing me with with some great research material And we've really only touched the tip of the iceberg here as far as the Donnelly story is. There's a lot more other interesting aspects I simply didn't have time to get to. So if you found this a fascinating story, I would urge you to do a little more research on the tale. A special thank you to Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com for allowing us to use several pieces of his music, including Unseen Horrors, Evening of Chaos, Decisions, and Heavy Heart. Quick reminder, we do have tours running every night in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto throughout March break. We'd love to see you out with your family, come out and enjoy some nice spring, fresh air. You can find the information about our tours on our website, which is hauntedwalk.com. If you're enjoying these episodes, we'd love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or your podcast catcher of choice. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you know when the next episode is coming out. Until we meet again, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.